Well, we thank Hallett for playing arpeggios. Before I begin this morning, I want to honor a promise I made to a man on Friday. Friday morning, I got a call from Tom Zarowski. He was in tears, really. Uh, we mentioned uh, from the pulpit in a previous sermon about the rebels that have overrun the Christian village and pretty well destroyed 30 years of work. Uh, talking to Tom, the situation's very desperate. People are on the verge of starvation. I mentioned to him, you know, when the Romans surrounded Jerusalem in 70 A.D., when they finally got into the city, some of the soldiers were appalled because they encountered a woman when starvation had eaten her baby. He said that's happening in southern Sudan. And one family that is close to them, their children have been kidnapped. Perhaps now they're at someone's dinner table. Who knows? Tom's heading back. He said, Jim, what do I say to people that have been through that? And I said, Tom, there's no way to plan. You must rely upon the promise that Jesus gave to the apostles that when you come before kings and governors, do not plan beforehand what you will say, but in that hour... The Holy Spirit will speak to you, and I believe that's the way this brother has. Would you join me in praying? Father, it's just almost impossible to understand the horror that our brothers and sisters are experiencing in this place. We thank you that you have raised up Tom Zarowski and his family to be emissaries to these people, O oh God. And as Tom goes to meet with them, we ask for your Holy Spirit to fill him in a way that he has never known before, that indeed his voice will be the voice of Jesus. We especially pray for this family whose children, I think it was probably Wednesday, were taken. Oh God, protect those children. But we also pray for these rebels who are desperate people, God. They're part of Satan's kingdom, a part of the kingdom of darkness. Oh God, how glorious it would be if the light of the gospel could penetrate their hearts. And that they in sorrow and repentance, like the Apostle Paul who voted for the death penalty for Christians, these could lament the horrors that they have done and receive the joy of your forgiveness. This is beyond us, too much for any human. Oh God, we pray that in two or three weeks we'll get another report from Tom, a report of glorious things. May it be through Jesus. Well, if you have spent much time on internet this past week, and if in your inbox you get things like uh, blogs and things from Newsmax, no doubt you heard about the sidewalk interviews that took place at Washington State University, in which a television reporter went to interview the students concerning the question about restrooms. 
whether or not it was appropriate for someone who had been born a male with all of the male fixtures in his body decided that he's a female and therefore could go into female restrooms. Uh, the law of Mississippi was discussed, and Target has just said that from this, their uh, corporate office has said that from now on, any of their customers or staff is free to use whatever restroom they feel is appropriate. And so this was discussed among the students. This sidewalk interviewer would stop a student and ask them and another and ask him and begin to ask about this. And the constant reply was, everyone has a right to determine himself or herself. You decide who you are. Without exception, that was the answer he got from these students. I think there were probably six or seven of them, one by one, totally apart from one another. None overheard the other. And then he said, well, what if I decide I'm a woman? Well, then you must be, if that's what you say you are. Well, what if I say I'm seven years old? Well, then you probably are. <laughs> then here's the one. What if I decide I'm a six-foot-five Chinese woman? Not a single one of them said we have the right to tell you you're wrong. Isn't that absurd? <laughs> that is the ultimate fruit of postmodernist thinking that says your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth. And here we go. But you know, this isn't a new concept, really. In history, the first record we have of that thinking was uh, in a, a, a Greek philosopher, an Athenian, really, named Protagoras. Protagoras was one of five philosophers who were known as sophists, and they made their living by teaching the sons of wealthy families how to conduct themselves. It is from the sophists that we get the term sophisticated. And one of the things they did especially was teaching the young men how to speak well and how to deliver orations. Now, Athens had an unusual way. Athens, by the way, was a city-state. Athens had an unusual way of funding public projects. Whenever they wanted to undertake a public project, they would pick a wealthy Athenian and give him what they called a liturgy. A liturgy meant he was responsible for funding the project. And the Athenians were quite litigious. They were often in court arguing, you know, you should not have given me this liturgy. You should have given it to that man. He's wealthier than I. There were no lawyers in Athens, and the litigants themselves had to go before the court, which was the city council. And so Protagoras made a lot of money by training wealthy Athenians how to be good orators. Protagoras put forth three propositions. First of all, he said, there's no way that we can know there is a God. Agnosticism is the only uh, theistic view that an intelligent person can have. And, he, and this is, I don't understand this one. He said, nobody will live long enough to find out whether or not there is a God. How long <laughs> would that make a difference? I don't know. He said, there are no absolutes. All truth is subjective. Man, he said, is the measure of all things. And of course, there are no absolutes. He illustrated that by this, that all truth is subjective. He said, picture two women in a room a few feet apart from one another. 
And one woman says it's cold in here and pulls her shawl about her shoulders. Another woman says it's hot in here and starts fanning herself. Who is right? The woman who says it's cold in here for her absolute truth or rather relative truth is it's cold in here. And the woman who says it's hot for her the truth is it's hot in here. And so he trained wealthy Athenians in using subjective truth as a means of delivering great orations and winning their case before the city council. There are no absolutes. Well, with all that foolishness aside, (laughs) this morning I want to talk about the ultimate absolute, God. A pretty good subject for Sunday morning, isn't it? (laughs) Is agnosticism the only way thinking people should think? Is there a God? I know at one time I wrestled with that question very deeply. There are many ways to seek the answer. You can seek it philosophically. You can seek it uh, according to the testimony of some. But for me, one of the most convincing evidences of the fact that there is a God has to do with intelligent design. Most of you know, for the last 40 years of my wife's life, she struggled with chronic ulcerative colitis. And over the years, in order to understand her disease, I tried to learn about the human digestive system. What happens when you put something in the mouth and all the way through until it leaves the body? How does the body get into the blood and the nerves and the muscles and the bones, nutrients that go here and out there. Amazing, amazing. The human digestive tract is astounding. I suppose it's the same for squirrels too, but as far as mammals are concerned. One interesting thing is at one point, fluid is removed. And then as the matter proceeds at a certain point, it's reinserted. Now, could evolution ever produce that? <laughs> evolution says, well, give me a million. I'll give you 10 million years. That still isn't going to make that happen. Now, Jesus said, don't ever call anybody a fool because if you do, you're in danger of hellfire. So I will not cause, call people who think that way fools. But I will say it's foolish thinking. Consider the eye. What is sight? Light strikes an object, and light is reflected off of that object. Different frequencies, depending on the color and the density and so on. And nerves in the eye react or respond to those light waves, and then the brain computes that and produces what we call sight. Could that have happened through chance evolution. (laughs) Now there's some theistic evolutionists say, well, God guided it all, but even guided evolution couldn't produce that unless the creator at some point reached in and did something. So why not call these people stupid but stupid thinking? 
there is a God. But not only the great designer, but the ability to create what he has designed. Isn't that something to think about? Not only can he design it, he can do it and has done it. There has to be a God. But who is this God? In previous sermons, we've talked about the fact that in the Greek New Testament, there are two words that are used for knowing God. First is gnosko. Gnosko has the idea of knowing God experientially, the way most of us know each other. We've had time together. We, we know how one another thinks. We can almost predict how somebody is going to respond to a certain situation. It's the way a husband knows a wife and a wife knows a husband. The other word is idon, and idon refers to knowing the facts about God and knowing his identity. And this morning, we want to talk about the idon aspect of knowing God. Who is this God? I'm going to skip a step. And that step is this, can we trust the Bible? And I tell you, in my own case, I one time went through a great struggle before I finally came to the place I can trust the Bible. And I think everybody here feels that way. So let's see, what does the Bible say? As we open the Word of God, the very first words we encounter are, Bereshit bara Elohim. In the beginning, God created. We want to focus on that word, Elohim, the word that we translate God. In English, if we want to indicate a plural subject, there are some words that actually change, like man changes to men, uh, he, she, it, and then they. But for most of our words, we indicate plural by adding an S on the end. Boy, boys. Car, cars. House, houses. In Hebrew, that is done by adding the suffix yod, mim. Im, Elohim, Elohim. Him means plural. And so we read in the Old Testament, the Elohim of the Philistines, the gods of the Philistines, plural. The Elohim of the Canaanites, the gods of the Canaanites. Interestingly, that plural word is the word that is used throughout the Old Testament for the true God, Elohim, plural. Now, when it is referring to the true God, it is used with singular pronouns, and in some cases even singular suffixes are added on the end, but it's still a plural word. I wonder what the Jews, how they explain that as they puzzled over it. Chapter 1, verse 26, you read, After God had finished the creation, and now it was the sixth day, and he said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness. And God created man in his own image, in the image of God created he them, created him, male and female created he them. But now let us make man in our image. Who is the us and who is the our? Certainly not angels. Man is not made in the image of angels. 
man is made in the image of God. Who is the us? Well, it is here that we come to that very important axiom, and it's a very important one is this. The Old Testament is the new concealed. The new is the old revealed. And so we look to the New Testament to come to an understanding and to an explanation of why was that plural word used for God? And in the New Testament, we see revealed the Trinity. Today, there's a growing challenge to the Trinity. Most of those that we would encounter, you would encounter anyway, are uh, oneness Pentecostals. And usually, when I talk with people that hold this view, they, they go to the Old Testament. They won't go to the New and they explain one God in three ways. You have a bucket of water and it's liquid, and you can get it hot and become steam, and you can freeze it and it is ice, but it is still the same bucket of water. And so this God has manifested himself as a son, he's manifested himself as a Holy Spirit, he's manifested himself as a father, but it is the same God. And frankly, again, I don't want to call anybody stupid, but when I read the New Testament, I have to say that's stupid thinking. <laughs> so many things. For instance, when our Lord Jesus Christ came to John the Baptist to be immersed, and John the Baptist immersed him, and as Jesus came up out of the water, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, remember? And the Holy Spirit came down and rested on him as a dove. Three beings existed there. Was Jesus just a play actor? When on the cross, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Or earlier in John 12, Father, if it be possible, let me pass from this hour. Nevertheless, it is for this hour that I came into the world. Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from... How do you read those passages without saying there are at least two beings? A son and a father. Let me read some verses from the closing night that Jesus had with his disciples. John beginning with verse 26. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Where I am, their servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now my soul has become troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me. Father, save me from this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came out of heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again, a Father and a Son. John 14, 16 to 7. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever, that is the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. You know him because he abides with you now and then will be in you. Here you have Father, Son, 
and Holy Spirit, the Trinity. John 15, 26 and 27, When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me, and you will testify also, and so on. And then this one from John 16, verse 7 and following. I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I not go away, the Helper will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, so on, Jesus says. And he says, because I go to the Father, you no longer see me. Then he says, uh, goes on, many more things I say to you. And then he says, but he will guide you, speaking of the of the Holy Spirit. He will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own initiative. Whatever he hears, he will speak. He will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine, disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine, two people. Therefore, I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. Now, in Acts, on the day of Pentecost, Remember after Peter had preached the sermon, he came toward the end and described the falling of the Holy Spirit. And in Acts 2.33, Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he, Jesus, has poured forth this which you both now see and hear. How can you read these passages and deny three beings it's clearly there the trinity but there are some people who say well yes we some people are uh, binatarians they believe in the father and the son is divine but the holy spirit really isn't divine the holy spirit is just kind of a force from heaven One thing is to notice that always the masculine pronoun is used for the Holy Spirit, He. And there are many passages we could look to. The book of Hebrews, several of them. But here's one, let me point out from Acts 5. Remember when Ananias and Sapphira noticed how Barnabas had sold a piece of land and brought the money and gave it to the apostles for the benefit of the church. And so they also wanted to kind of get that same reputation. They sold a piece of land. Let's say they got... $100,000 $100,000 for it. They said, you know, let's just tell the apostles we got 75 and give 75 and keep 25 for ourselves. And, and that's what they did. Peter said, what, and in your hand? You didn't have to do that. And then he says this, Acts 5, verse 3. Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back some of the price of the land while it remained unsold and did not remain on your own when it was sold was it not under your control then this first of all he said why did you lie to the holy spirit now he says you have not lied to men but you have lied to god notice he is equating the holy spirit with god and we could show under passages as well anyone who reads the new testament with an open mind has to see the trinity the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that's who our God is. What's he like? 
What is its character? Well, we start off by saying, well, you know, in the Old Testament and New Testament, both names were very important. Names were given because they signified something about the person. What is the name of God? What is the name of this triune God? You recall when Moses had spent 40 years as a shepherd and God was calling him to go back to Egypt to be God's agent to deliver his people He saw a burning bush that was not consumed, and he went over. This is strange. There's a fire, but the bush isn't being burned. What's happening? And I said, take off your sandals. You're walking on holy ground. And now the bush, the voice commissioned him. And Moses said, you know, if I go back and tell the people this, they want to know who sent you. What's your name? And the voice out of the bush, Exodus 3.14 said, I am who I am. Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, I am sent me. Now, the Hebrew word for I am, the state of being verb, is very similar. As a matter of fact, it probably is the source of the word that we translate as Jehovah or Yahweh. Isaiah, the Lord said in Isaiah 42, 8, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to any other. Now where he says, I am the Lord, you see, the Jews reading in the Ten Commandments, God said, you shall not take the name of Yahweh in vain. And God will not hold him guiltless, anyone who does. And so out of reverence for this sacred name, the Jews developed a fear of even saying it. And so when they came to the tetragrammaton, that means a a word with four letters, it was all consonants. Now, I'm sure some of you have played Wheel of Fortune. (laughs) And when you're sitting in Wheel of Fortune... You see the, the wheel, and here's the, you start getting all these consonants, and you start trying to figure out the word unless you want to buy a vowel. Hebrew originally had no vowels. It was all consonants. And later in, in the uh, current era, they started adding consonants because people were losing the ability to speak the language. So let's add consonants so we can speak the language. Oh, what do we do with the tetragrammaton, the, the, the four-letter word which is the name for God? The Hebrew word for Lord, Adonai, they took the vowels from Adonai and added them to the tetragrammaton and came up with Yahweh. Now, why do we say Yahweh? Because it was German scholars who first began to work on this. And in German, J is like a Y. And there's no W sound in German. The W is a V. Like instead of Richard Wagner, the opera Richard Wagner. <laughs> so, J-E-H-O-V-A-H in German would be Yahweh. <laughs> when we see it, we say Jehovah. <laughs> but Yahweh is really closer to what the Hebrew would be. 
And so God said to Isaiah, I am Yahweh. That is my name. It's interesting, Deuteronomy 6, 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Here it says, Hear, O Israel, Yahweh is our, is our, and in here it has Elohim, and even though it is a plural word, it adds singular suffixes to it, but it is still Yahweh. <laughs> so Yahweh is our plural God. <laughs> Yahweh is one. Interesting, isn't it, the way that plays out. So literally, the verse says, Yahweh, our God, is one, but yet it says it with a plural noun. The Jews developed such a holy fear of this word that when they were copying scripture and they came to that word, they would pick up a fresh writing instrument and write the tetragrammaton, then they'd throw that away and never use it again. And no one ever said the word for fear of taking the name Yahweh in vain. And it is derived from that word that said, I am has sent me. It, it comes from that verb of state of being. One, in my view, of the greatest tragedies of this culture, we have become an irreverent people. We are a very irreverent culture. If we lived in a culture where there was a king and a monarch, perhaps we'd be more reverent. But we live where people are self-determinative. We all have a vote. And who is anyone to tell me even who I am? Maybe I am a six-foot-five Chinese woman. Interesting, Bill commenting on that said he has decided that he's a six-foot-five black NBA basketball player. And... You know what that means. From now on, when I, five foot eight, speak to Bill, I have to look up. <laughs> we live in a very irreverent age. Proverbs 1 7 the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Isaiah 42, 8, I am the Lord, I am Jehovah, I am Yahweh, that is my name. And I will give my glory, not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. When the Israelites were coming into the promised land, the Lord, speaking of the fact they were going to encounter all kinds of gods, said this in Exodus 3, 20 verse 5, you shall not worship them or serve them. I am Jehovah, Yahweh, your God. I am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and fourth generation to those who hate me. Isaiah, in chapter 6, we find one of the most striking scenes in all of God's word. Isaiah says he was in the temple 
and he had a vision. Now we know it was a vision because Jesus said, No man has ever seen God and lived. And besides, God is a spirit. How can you see a spirit? So Isaiah was given this tremendous vision. He said, I see Jehovah high and lifted up, and the train of his robe fills the temple, all the room where Isaiah was. And there were these beings flying about, Holy, holy, holy is Jehovah of hosts. Then Isaiah said, Isaiah 6, 5, Woe is me, I'm ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, Jehovah, Yahweh of hosts. Now some people say, well, you know, the fear of God, that's an Old Testament idea. We now have dear sweet and gentle Jesus who's so kind and he is our friend and you know the New Testament has a different view (laughs) Luke writing about the health of the churches in Judea and Galilee and Samaria wrote this so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit it continued to increase Peter writing said but sanctify Christ as the Lord in your hearts always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you then he said yet the gentleness and the Greek word here is phobos which means fear, which we might want to say reverence, but behind it there's more than just I'm reverent. Fear of God is something that's missing from so many of our churches, missing so much from our culture. God is God, the Holy One of Israel, and who are we? If it is really our desire to know God and the heart of God, then we look at Jesus. John 1.18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God and the newer, the oldest uh, manuscripts say God. Some of the newer say Son. So we go with the oldest. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. John 1.18. Remember, in John 14, we have the record of Jesus meeting with his apostles before he was to ascend. And Thomas said, Lord, just show us the Father that's sufficient. Jesus said, have you been so long time, this is Philip, pardon me. Have you been so long time with me, Philip, and you have not known me? He who has seen me has seen the Father. To know the heart of God the Father, look at the life of Jesus. Kind, yes. Caring, yes. Forgiving, yes. Angry, yes. (laughs) When Jesus came into the temple, he was so upset by the fact that this place was to be a holy place of prayer, had been turned to a place of merchandise, 
the Sadducees who ruled the temple said we, must, we will receive lambs as an offering, but they have to be a lamb bought from our flock. You can't bring one of your own. And by the way, we sell them with some nice profit, 15% markup perhaps. They said when you bring coin to sacrifice, we're not going to accept the coin that everybody has. It has to be a shekel. And the only way you can get a shekel is we have all of them and you have to buy one from us. Jesus said, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer and you've made it a den of thieves. He turned over the table to the money changer. It says he had a whip. (laughs) Drove out those, their animals and those that were doing these things. Anger. God has anger. Paul says that by the sacrifice of Jesus we have been delivered from the wrath of God. God has anger. Jesus demonstrated anger. Hypocrisy. Matthew 23. What a strong word against hypocrisy that that is there. So, So often in our churches, the focus is on us. The focus is on the people rather than God. We've mentioned before that it's sad to say, in my view, sad anyway, that some seminaries are graduating more counselors now than they are preachers. Focus on people. Counselors are not wrong. They're great blessings. But something's out of place when people become more important than proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. Something's wrong. The great commandments, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy mind, with all thy soul, with all thy strength, and a second like unto it, thou shalt love thy neighbors thyself. Sometimes we get those backwards, I think. Let God be God. Well, what would we say in conclusion? (laughs) I suppose the most fitting conclusion is this. What is good? How do you define good? The only way a Christian can define good is this. Good is that which reflects the character of God. Human laws don't set good. My opinion doesn't set good. What reflects God? That's good. What doesn't is not good. Ecclesiastes 12.13, the conclusion when it all has been heard is this. Fear God. Keep his commandments. Because this applies to every person. Thank God he's God. (laughs) Amen. Thank you, Jim, for speaking to us about the ultimate, absolute God, that he's Trinity, what he's like. I want to remind you that all these messages are on tape. You can listen to them again. I think we might want to just meditate on what we've heard, look at the scriptures, and... uh, 
just fall on our knees to thank our most holy God. I want to remind you one more time of the on-site 12-hour prayer advance this coming Saturday. You can sign up in the foyer. Vacation Bible School needs various items as they prepare for the summer is VBS. Uh, other items in the bulletin, please review them as well. Father, thank you for an amazing day. Thank you for speaking to us in such a powerful way. Thank you that your word is so clear. Father, I pray that uh, we might be reminded again of the fear of God and that it might be a guiding principle in all that we say and all that we do. Help us, Father, this week to bring glory and honor and praise to your most holy name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.